Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to worship you. Our worship has been about your Son and about your Word and empowered by your Spirit, and we pray that that same emphasis would continue as we open your Word. Teach us. Help us to be impressed with your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and help us, by your grace, to see you making this same impact in our lives that we see in our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do not easily relinquish what we consider our rights. We in the United States of America subscribe to the Declaration of Independence, one of which statements says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I doubt that many of us would quibble much with this statement. Where differences tend to arise is in what is this happiness found? In what is this happiness found? We're in our Bibles in the book of Romans chapter 8. I'd like for us to look at verses 5 through 8 as the Apostle Paul lets us know some of the challenges that arise. He says in verse 5, But those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not submit itself or does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our natural man has a way of telling us what will make us happy. Our natural man tends to drive us toward what it tells us will, be, will make us happy. What are the kinds of things that our natural condition lets us know will bring us happiness? It's different for everyone, right? But some things may have some parallels. How about a car? Oh, if I get this car, I'll be happy because it'll get me to and back, you know, to and from work, and everything will be great. Hopefully, it'll look nice. Hopefully, it'll be smooth driving. Hopefully, it'll have air conditioning. Hopefully, I won't have to use the cranks to, to bring the windows down. Some of you buy those on purpose. There might be something wrong with you. But nonetheless, um, how about a house? You know, I want a certain house in a certain location. I want to have certain features. This will make me happy. A new pair of shoes or boots or sneakers. Some other dreams fulfilled. Something about your future. Something about uh, some plan you've made. These are the kinds of things. We know within us what makes us happy. We also know many times that that happiness is fleeting. You know, if our happiness is bound up in a sports team, 
you know, you're happy one week and maybe not so much the next week. Or let's suppose your team is the one that wins the championship and like you, you live on that for a week or two, but then like everything goes back to normal. Like you have really no advantage from your team winning except for that, that window of, of happiness inside of your spirit. That certainly can't be the place where we find our ultimate fulfillment. God's Word does give us some insight on what brings true and lasting contentment and happiness. So I want for us to look at one passage and then I'll remind you of another. So first of all, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. God does tell us what brings happiness or contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, you hear the, the wording of the Apostle Paul who you'll remember at the time of writing the book of Philippians, is in jail, possibly chained to a Roman soldier. And he writes this in Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Alright, let's stop there for a second. When you are in a Roman prison in the first century, know this, they do not provide you with three squares a day. And they don't provide you with a jumpsuit. So if you have needs, someone has to bring them to you. You have to have some friends or family that care for you. And Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need. Well, you kind of are in need. But not if you understand where I'm coming from, folks. For I have learned, in the middle of verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what does it say? Intent. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret. This didn't come to me naturally. This came supernaturally. This came through time and experience. This came through perseverance. This came through God's Spirit teaching me something. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He had learned that ultimate peace, joy, and happiness are wrapped up in knowing, in being related to, in being invested in, being united with Christ himself. The author of Hebrews said it a little bit differently. This will be on the screen to my left and right. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What is it that makes a person truly content? What is it that makes a person truly happy? truly at peace, truly having joy in their spirit. It is that relationship with God that is unshakable, unwavering, and not dependent on me. God didn't say, if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. He said, this is my promise. This is who I am. I will never, under any circumstances, in any way, for any reason, leave you or forsake you. There are five negatives 
in the, in the Greek language there, five of them. And each intensifies the last. I will never, no, never, no, never, absolutely, under any circumstances, never leave you or forsake you. And this brings joy and contentment. And yet our hearts yearn for more. Our hearts yearn for something else. This is the natural condition of our hearts. As we continue our study of Philippians, we will continue to see that life formed by the gospel is unique. It is unique from the world in which we live. The Christian community has an entirely different culture. We've been calling it a gospel culture. And as we look at this section of the book of Philippians, we really see the heart of gospel culture. First of all, notice uh, back in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, that gospel culture is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Gospel culture is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The the only command in verses 5 all the way through verse 11, is the one found in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. This is our job. Have this mind among yourselves. This is not foreign to the rest of the New Testament. In fact, I want to point to you, uh, point out to us a couple of other places where this very same idea is conveyed. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.1, 4, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You see, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He just told us that in chapter 3 and verse 18 that He suffered the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. And the Lord Jesus spoke about discipleship this very same way in in Luke 6 and verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. In other words, our desire as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, those who are the saved of Jesus Christ, those who have been made brethren to Jesus Christ, our job is to look to Him, to see His glorious way. And by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and in accordance with God's Word, to walk, to walk in harmony with that mind that is found in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves. He says in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now the the Greek language is sufficiently vague there. 
So this is a fine translation, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you read it that way, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, as, as those who are united together with Christ, this mindset is a result of that union. It's a result of that unity with Christ. So that's fine. That's a fine way to read that. And it, it, it could be read that way from the Greek. I think the New American Standard and, and the New King James and the King James have it translated a little differently and also in accordance with what, how those words can be conveyed. The New American Standard says this, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's how it reads then. Have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ exemplified this mindset that you are now to follow. That probably is a better translation than what we have in our ESV because the whole idea in this chapter, particularly this section, is that we are not to seek our own interests but the interests of others. We're not simply to be... um, Uh, seeking our own way, selfish ambition and conceit, verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. And then he says, have this mind in you. It was exemplified in Christ. It it kind of has a a far more uh, logical connection, though either way is fine and both result in the same thing. Because we're united together with Christ, we, we have this availability of a mindset that's like His. Or, because we've seen what Christ is all about, and we've seen His example, and He's about to give us that example, we should see that example and, by God's grace, emulate it. So Paul then goes on to describe the type of mindset being called for. Our Savior displayed to perfection the type of thinking needed to establish a gospel culture. He is, he is the gospel culture, right? And so the way that he displays that gospel culture is a perfect example of it. The humiliation of Jesus Christ is hard to comprehend. But God gives us a glimpse into this radical subjection here in this passage. Paul uses three different words to capture the nature of Jesus Christ. The first one we want to draw attention to is the word morphe. Morphe. He uses it twice. Once in verse 6. And once in verse 7. In verse 6 he says, Who, though he was in the form, there's morphe, the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form, there's morphe again, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he uses the term morphe twice, once in verse 6, once in verse 7. I really like the statement by F.F. F. Bruce. It's simple. It's simple, but very, very important. He writes, Possession of the form implies participation in the essence. Form looks like, the Bible tells us in Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of God. It tells us that also in Hebrews chapter 1. He's the, the radiant uh, splendor. He, he, he displays God. Okay, so the form of God. But, but because He is in the form of God, it lets us know that He is in the essence of God. He is in everything He is, in every way, He is, in fact, God. This is of great importance. Jesus Christ has always been and always will be God. 
He is eternally existent. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He is merciful. He is kind. He is loving. He is gracious. He is truth. He is unchanging. He is infinite. And He is sovereign. This. This is the Jesus described in the pages of Scripture. And this is the Jesus, if you are to have an eternal abode in heaven, that you have embraced as Lord and Savior. He is perfectly, utterly, infinitely God. He uses a second term in this phrase, speaking about Jesus and who He is. It says, being born in the likeness of men. And the word there is homoioma. You can hear same, homoioma. That's the same, same, oma, having the idea of sameness in, in essence or sameness in likeness. He was, in fact, not only fully God, he was also fully man. Fully man. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 14, speaking about Jesus, and the Word became what? Flesh. Like literal. Living, bleedable, bruisable, fatigable flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The author of Hebrews writes it this way in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. The same things. He's flesh and blood. He's perfectly flesh. He's perfectly man. He's fully man. This is so important, folks. Uh, It's so important that the Apostle John spoke this way in 1 John chapter 4. He said, By this you know the... Excuse me, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh has come from God. He's not only fully God, he is fully man. So, the Lord Jesus, we know that the Lord Jesus experienced hunger, thirst, weariness. We know he felt pain, and we know he was sorrowful. In fact, the the prophet Isaiah said he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See, the Lord Jesus is fully God. Yes, he's fully man. This is who he is. This is the essence of our Savior. There's a third word that Paul uses in the Greek to help us to understand. And that's the word schema. Schema. In verse 8, 
and being found in human form. Form, this is flesh and blood. So he was in essence man. He was in likeness man. And he was in form man. This is who he is. There's no one else like him. There are no other deity-oriented men. Fully God, fully man. He's the only one that is very God of very gods and fully imbibed human nature. It's just incredible. We, 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 because we have been in church so long, um, we lose the awe of this incredible union, this union of God and man in one being. First and always, He was and is God. You'll remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. You'll remember Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus, when He was confronted with, uh, for healing a man on the Sabbath day, He said, my Father works and I work. Also making Himself equal with God. Jesus is the Creator and sustainer of the universe. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 1, and it's such an incredible passage of Scripture. In fact, it's so incredible. Let's take a look there. Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. In Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, God is answering the cries of a people that are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And He responds with this letter. And he writes through a man, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He what created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin or sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is who our Jesus is, our Savior. Jesus demonstrated in His earthly ministry power over demons, power over disease, power over this created order. You remember He was... He was in the midst of the boat. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And the disciples were fearing for their lives. And they, they made that, that plea. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And he arises from his sleep. He looks out at the wind and the waves. And he says, peace be still. And the wind stops. Now, how long would it take for the water to stop after the wind stops? Take a while, right? But not when Jesus utters the word. He didn't just stop the, we- the, the, the wind. He stopped the waves. And his disciples were dumbfounded. In fact, they were frightened. What kind of a person is this, that even the wind and the waves obey His voice. This is, this is the one. This is the one who hung on the cross 
condemned for my sin. This is the one who was charged with what I truly am guilty with. And he can control nature itself. He's remarkable. He demonstrated power over sin. You remember the, the people brought the man to him and it was all, the, the, the house was crowded and, and they figured, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So they climbed up on the roof and they unthatched the thatch <laughs> and they lowered him down and Jesus said, your sins be forgiven you. Go. <laughs> and the people were like, what? what's up with that? Who has power to forgive sin? Only God. This is Jesus. Jesus also demonstrated power over Satan, not only in his personal interaction with him in the wilderness when for 40 days of fasting he was tempted by the devil and never once gave in. But instead of giving in, continuously pointed out the Scripture. Now we only have three examples of it, but that didn't take 40 days, right? So how many other like temptations were there? Dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens. And how many Scripture passages did he use? Probably dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens. Power over Satan. He also demonstrated power over Satan one, one special day. Remember it? You do remember. He was in a grave, right? And he was literally dead. And the Bible, as it does, it doesn't like to leave us comfortable in our understanding of things, lets us know that God the Father raised him. And that God the Holy Spirit raised him. And that Jesus raised himself. Well, thank you. I got it. I completely understand now. But that is power over Satan. And there's a day coming, folks. I don't know when. There's a day coming when Satan will be completely, utterly, and eternally finished. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's waiting until His enemies are made His footstool. The last of those enemies, Satan and death, right? Those things are still to come, to be finished off and, and completed. It's coming. This is, this is my Savior. Is He your Savior? Fully man, fully God. Jesus raised the dead, he healed the blind, was transfigured before the inner circle of disciples, was raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he sits at God's right hand. Okay, this is who we're talking about. Look, what does it say back in Philippians chapter 2? It says in the middle of verse 6, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped. The word grasped there, it's not complicated. Something to be forcibly retained. He didn't consider the form of God, the outward expression of His deity, the full display of His deity, something that He was willing to to grasp onto too tightly. Imagine yourself walking through a crowd with your small child 
and she is in your arms, and someone tries to rip her from your grasp, what are you going to do, folks? You're going to fight to the death. You're going to fight to the death for that little one. She's yours, and she's a responsibility. She's a responsibility. You will not allow yourself to have life left in you while someone rips your baby girl away. Jesus was willing to be seen as simply a man, simply human. So although he was God and is God, he made himself nothing. That's what it says in verse 7, but emptied himself. But emptied himself. The word there is the Greek term kenoo. Kenoo. Um, you have heard probably the term kenosis, not to be confused with halitosis. <laughs> not at all. Kenosis is the humbling of Jesus. And now there's a lot of confusion about this. And what we don't want to do is be confused. We want to be understanding it as best we can from what God has told us. Jesus divested himself. Good word. I like the word divested. Jesus divested himself of the glories and prerogatives of deity. In other words, Jesus as fully God had a right to exercise his his will and to independently exercise what he wanted and to display fully his glorious nature as God. And yet, he emptied himself of the free exercise of his independent will and he, he emptied himself of the full display of his glory. This is, this is impressive. We know this is the case by looking at Scripture. So I want for us to look at three passages. We'll do it in quick succession. They're all in the Gospels. We're going to come right back here. Okay, so John 17 first. This is Jesus praying to his Father. We call it the high priestly prayer, or we can call it, uh, you know, whatever. It's Jesus talking to his Father. You can call it whatever you want to. Um, as long as it's reverent. But Jesus is talking to his Father on behalf of his disciples and on behalf of those disciples that would come after those disciples. Listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus wasn't looking for some new experience of glory. He was looking for the glory that really is rightly his. He willingly divested himself of that glory. Take a look, please, at Matthew 26. You'll recognize this text. Please join me in verse 39. We'll see verse 38 for a little bit of context. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is God, right? He can do what he wants. 
but he has surrendered himself. He submitted himself. He has committed himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. So Jesus subjugated himself. Take a look at John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, please look at verse 34 with me. Jesus said to them, My food, what sustains me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is, this is what Jesus did in emptying himself, was he placed himself in this, this position of fully subscribing to and fulfilling the Father's will and not his own will. Head back to Philippians chapter 2, please. He made himself nothing or he emptied himself. It says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. We're going to talk more about that verse in a moment, but let's just talk about his, his humiliation in general. He humbled himself to be placed under the law of man. He humbled himself to the tutelage of his parents. He humbled himself to the scrutiny of the religious crowd. But ultimately, in what, what makes our hearts both break and sing, both, is ultimately he humbled himself to the judgment for our sin that he did not commit. That's what this text points out. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, that, that phrase is, let, you know, we have a fuller understanding from, from the rest of Scripture. That he didn't just die for death's sake. He didn't just die for the sake of the crowds. He died because it was the ordained purpose of God. God purposed from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would bear my sin. Wow. Talk about humility. He didn't do it. He didn't commit the sin. And yet He took it on as His own. Was guilty, condemned, judged for it. And yet we want to defend ourselves to make sure that no injustice comes our way. His humility and humiliation was not just to death. It was to a specific kind of death. It says in the end of verse 8, even death on a cross. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block. Why? Because the law said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus was cursed to the Jews. And it says foolishness to the Gentiles, particularly to the Romans. The Romans' crucifixion was so cruel and so demeaning that no Roman citizen would experience crucifixion. 
because it was the ultimate form of torture and humiliation. And they cared too much about the uh, Roman citizenship to mar their citizenship by one of their citizens being crucified. Jesus, bloodied, naked, foolish to the Gentiles, cursed to the Jews, condemned by the crowd, and worse yet, judged by the Father. This is the second person of the triune Godhead. This is the Son of God. This is the one who spoke the world into existence. And this is the one who sustains each star, each planet, and each molecule. He humbled himself. And this is the call. Have this mind among yourselves as it was displayed in Christ Jesus. He was in the form of God, but he didn't take that as some reason to to cling to it, to hold on to it, to grasp it for himself, but instead took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and being found in the form of a man he humbled himself to the point of death even the death of the cross he humbled himself gospel culture is based upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ this is who we say we are he is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. In union with Him, this mind is capable to us. We, we by God's Spirit, can, can demonstrate this. There's a second element to this in verses 9 through 11. And we'll do this very straightforwardly and very quickly. Gospel culture seeks to bring ultimate glory to God. Gospel culture seeks to bring ultimate glory to God. Verses 9 through 11, look what it says. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is... Jesus Christ is... Let's say it all now. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A reward for His humiliation is the name that is above every name. Jesus didn't do it for the reward. This is just stating a fact. Because He humbled Himself, this exaltation was His. The New Testament doesn't do for us what the Old Testament oftentimes does. When the proper name for God is employed in the Old Testament, you will see all caps, LORD, L-O-R-D, all caps. In our New Testament, the word used is kurios, simply can mean Lord or Master, can be used of some unsaved, terrible Master, or it can be used of Lord Most High, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, 
God is giving to Jesus the name that is above every name, the personal name for God, which was captured by the letters YHWH in the Hebrew text and is called the, by some, and I like to repeat it every now and then, the ineffable tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four-letter word, Yahweh, Lord. Jesus has been granted that title, that name, by God. Take a look, please, with me at Isaiah 45 for a moment. In Isaiah 45, wonderful passage. We're going to read a couple of verses from verses 18 and 19, and then a little later in the the chapter, just to get a flavor for it. Verse 18 of Isaiah 45, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. Now let's just stop for a second. Who created the heavens? How do you know that Jesus created the heavens? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Got it? Easy. Easy day. No confusion. By the way, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. All right, We've got the idea that Jesus is God. There are people that still fight that in religious circles. I'm sorry for them. They are utterly wrong and will be utterly disturbed by their false teaching. Verse 18, For thus says the Lord God, or thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is what? I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am, and there is, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To Him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against Him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Who are we talking about, folks? We're talking about God. And specifically, His Son, Jesus, who's been given the name that is above every name at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. That is not a condition. That is a statement of fact. Well, who? Who? Those in heaven? Got it. Those on earth? I get it. King of kings, Lord of lords, of course. That makes sense. Under the earth. Ooh. That's pretty intense. His name is so spectacular that everyone everywhere will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is Lord of all. This is for those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. This is everyone. 
And Paul ends that section in verse 11, letting us know that all of this is to the glory of God the Father. All of this is to the glory of God the Father. So I want for us to just take a step back, just for a moment. We're just, we're just about done. Don't turn off yet. Jesus was willing to suppress His divine prerogatives in order to display His human nature. We must suppress our human prerogatives in order to display God's nature dwelling in us. You see, what Jesus has done, we cannot do. We are not God. So we can't humble ourselves and say, well, I will set aside my divine prerogatives and my divine glories. I don't have any. So for me to follow in the footsteps of my Savior in this way is not for me to set aside my glory from God, but to set aside my willful, human, fleshly agenda. You know what it is. And if you don't know what your human, fleshly agenda is that that needs to be set aside, I, I do charge you to spend the next few days saying, God, show me. Show me what my fleshly agenda is. Show me what needs to be set aside. Show me what I need to empty myself of or divest myself of. We have so many things we, we think of as, of, of as inalienable rights. Really? After what you see in your Savior, you really want to cling on to all those with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your parents, with your neighbor, with your boss. You really want to cling on to all those things. Prove yourself a man. Get everything you can. Not miss out on anything that's yours. If that's the way we go through life, we're just doing life like everyone else. That is not gospel culture. Gospel culture is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And gospel culture seeks not our glory, but the glory of God the Father. And the way to that is by setting aside what we view as rights for something other than that. Doing what's right. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. What is at stake in our suppressing our own agenda? It's whether we are going to display the glory of God or not. This is what establishing a gospel culture is all about. Your needs, your interests, what brings glory to God rather than what I think I need, what my interests are, and what brings glory to me. Gospel culture. Jesus displayed it, and God has called us to have this mind in yourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
that your word is clear. And while there are a lot of difficulties in Philippians 2, where a lot of pages have been written, a lot of debates have been had, what is clear is that your Son and our Savior, who is eternally God, humbled himself to purchase us, to pay our sin, to be condemned as sin, even though he did no sin. Thank you. Thank you that for a sinner like me, you sent your son to die. You credited my sin to him, and then you credited his righteousness to me because you have brought forth within me and many others here faith, faith to see, faith to believe, faith to embrace your Son. Father, we are impressed with you. We are impressed with your Spirit and so, thank, uh, so thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is matchless. Help us as we, as we seek to display this. We pray that you would show us when we are seeking our own will and our own glory and to help us to recognize that that is not the way for fulfillment but our greatest fulfillment is in our union with you through Christ. Do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.